This is Neil Rockhind. This is another edition of the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast, where we talk to top lawyers around the country. They take time out to visit with me and to talk about their practices, their past, their thoughts about cases, and the way that they approach cross-examination in trials. And today, I'm honored to have Josh Ritter, who's one of the top criminal defense lawyers and top lawyers around the country. Josh, thank you for being here, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you for the kind words. I'm looking forward to this. Same here. So Josh, first of all, tell us what you do, where your practice is located, um, and, and about your social media presence. Sure. Uh, my practice is located in downtown Los Angeles. I, I recently actually joined a new firm. It's called Eldabe Ritter. Uh, we do criminal defense. I head up the criminal defense department, but we also do personal injury. Uh, before that, though, I was a prosecutor for nearly 10 years here in L.A. County um, as a district uh, deputy district attorney. Uh, and then I left to, to go private and joined a, a, a boutique, uh, fairly prestigious criminal defense firm. But then, like I said, just recently, I went out on my own. Um, I'm trying to create a little, you know, uh, social media presence. I've got a Instagram and Twitter, both are at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And I've got a website if people want to check it out at joshuaritter.com. And Josh, you and I happened to, to meet on a, um, on a, a podcast. Um, well, really, I think the first time we ended up meeting, let me correct myself. The first time we ended up meeting was we spoke on, um, we, we, we shared a segment, I think, with uh, Linda Kinney Baden on law and crime. Yeah, yeah, and then so, that was fun. So t t tell me if you would, how did you get going with your, um, with legal television analysis and expert analysis? Sure. Um, it really kind of started with the podcast. Uh, my, my, fortuitously, my wife uh, is in PR and she knew a booking agent for, for the True Crime Daily podcast. And they asked me to be a guest a few times. And then uh, they asked me to host my own show. And so that's what I do now. I host, it's called True Crime Daily's The Sidebar podcast, where we kind of Instead of doing just true crime, we try to do true crime once it hits the courthouse. So it's like, you know, you've heard about the the wife who murdered her husband and buried him under the stairs, but now let's take a look at that once it's gone to trial. And ever since doing that, I just, you know, wanted to take as much of an opportunity uh, to exploit that exposure. And so I've been doing some commentary on law and crime and uh, um, on court TV and kind of wherever uh, people will have me. It's a, so it's a pretty cool show. Um, True Crime Daily and it's the Sidebar Podcast. There's actually, um, uh, is there a podcast? So you have a podcast called Sidebar, which is associated right. with True Crime Daily. And then is there another component to True Crime Daily as well? Yeah, so there's the the main podcast, which is just called True Crime Daily, um, hosted by Anna Gar uh, Garcia. And it it's like I said, it's more kind of a traditional true crime. Like they take a look at really horrendous um, kind of high profile. Some of them are under the radar cases from uh, across the country and just analyze those. And they have different guests on who might be lawyers or detectives or psychologists and just kind of analyze different aspects of those cases. Tell me how you got started in the practice of law. I know you told us that you were a prosecutor and you and I share 
we have that in our, our background. Um, and I know you are in, um, uh, you're with a, 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 a firm now, um, I think it's called El Dabe, which you talked about a moment ago. But take us a little further back and tell us, if you don't mind, how you got into the practice of law. Um, I think it was inescapable. My father was a lawyer. Uh, my, my brother is a lawyer. Um, I actually tried to kind of buck the trend. Uh, when I went to college at UCLA, I got into creative writing and I wanted to be maybe like a screenwriter or something like that. But, you know, <laughs> well, did you tell your parents that you were, I'm taking law, but really on yeah, the side? Yeah, taking... <laughs> yeah. It, it, well, it was one of those things too, where, you know, once you got the degree in your hand and nobody's pounding down your door to offer you a job, <laughs> you kind of need to look uh, in other directions. And so I, I decided to go to the law school and it was with the idea that, listen, with a law degree, I don't care what I end up doing. This isn't going to hurt. It's going to be valuable to have. And while I was in law school, I had always always thought I would be a personal injury lawyer because I knew I wanted to be in trial. And I thought, well, that's the way you're, you're going to be in trial and really kind of be able to shine in that respect and also make money. But while I was in law school, I got exposed to the DA's office and I was actually placed there as an internship, as a law clerk. And I thought the DA's office was populated by people who kind of couldn't get jobs elsewhere and were kind of has been -y type of government workers. And instead, I found the DA's office was full of really bright, ambitious young lawyers who really, ex, you know, flourished and excelled at trial work. And I just got the bug and I was like, this is what I want to do. So I was a law clerk uh, for, for a few years. I was actually the law clerk for the prosecution of Phil Spector, you remember, for the murder of Lana of Clarkson. Yeah. yeah. And that's how I met you know, um, Linda Kinney. Yeah, exactly. And that's how I met her. Uh, and that was prosecuted by uh, Alan Jackson, who became a very close friend and, and mentor of mine. Um, and then I became a DA for about 10 years. I was a prosecutor. And then Alan had left to go private and start his own law firm. And I ended up leaving the DA's office to go work for his law firm initially. And that's where I was for about five, seven years until I just recently now uh, joined uh, El Dave Ritter. It's fantastic. What a so so what, what an interesting background because I remember watching the Phil Spector case. Yeah, I had never seen anybody actually apply the the shifting sands of the Sahara in a in an actual case. I mean, I've heard, of course, you know about the shifting sands, and you know you look one way and you think then and that you wake up in the morning and it's a it's flat and you have no way. And I thought it was, I forget if Alan argued that or if somebody else on the, on the prosecution team argued that, but it yeah. was fascinating. I yeah, mean, that was, uh, that was his uh, colleague at the time. The it was done twice, the trial. So first it was Alan Jackson and a, a gentleman by the name of Pat, Pat Dixon, who's the head of major crimes. And that trial hung, unfortunately, 10 to two, I think it was a really close hang for guilt. Uh, so they had to retry it. And when they retried it, um, it was Alan in the lead with a colleague named Truck Doe. Um, and she was the one that, that argued that shifting sands argument in her closing. And if I do say so myself, I did have a part in that because we were trying to find a theme. And that was kind of one of the things we stumbled upon in brainstorming on that. That must have been a, uh, what was it like to be 
Um, I, first of all, what was your role in the case? I was the law clerk. So I was doing the research and, and, and whatever else needed to be done. And, you know, it, it was a lot of late hours, um, but I enjoyed every minute of it because it was, you know, here's the highest level of criminal practice taking place in front of me in a case that's being broadcast all over the country and just kind of all of the intrigue of that. But, you know, I was the, I was the gopher. I was the guy making copies. I was the guy doing the research and writing them the motions. I was doing whatever needed to be done in between to kind of assist them in that prosecution. Um, that must've been like in some way being invited or, or earning whatever word you want to use your way into like backstage at Woodstock or, you know what I mean? Working for the, you know, the, right. the, the stones or the, the Beatles. Cause that's as, that's as high profile as good lawyering as you're going to get. I mean, yeah. With the best experts, with the, the stakes as high as they could be. Yeah. It, it spoiled me. It was, it was, it was fascinating, but at the same time, everything since then, <laughs> you know, my, you know, when you go from, prosecuting Phil Spector. And then when you start in the DA's office as a prosecutor yourself, you're doing misdemeanors out in one of the branch courts and nobody Traffic cares. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so it was a little bit of a rude awakening for when I first became an actual prosecutor. But it it was fascinating to watch these incredibly skilled attorneys on both sides arguing this case. Ex like you said, the experts, the the attention given to it, the judge. I mean, you're dealing with judges too, who are just, you know, incredible scholars in the law and hearing all of them, uh, their arguments and how they flesh these things out. It really is the, like you said, the kind of at the highest level of criminal practice. If memory serves, the judge's name, was it Fiedler? Fedler? Fiddler. 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 Pretty, yeah. pretty good memory that I, yeah. I wasn't even involved in the case. And I remember this is an interesting segue because tell me there was conflict between he and um, Bruce Cutler, relatively early on, there were a lot yeah. of objections to Bruce Cutler's yeah. um, cross-examination and his his sort of opening style, right? Yeah, Bruce, you know, Bruce had made a big name for himself on the East Coast. And I think there was just kind of a difference in styles. And I think he wanted to come in there with kind of that, that New York bravado and kind of yeah throwing elbows and let me handle this and I'm running the court and Fiddler was not a person to suffer fools and not calling Bruce a fool but he was he shut that down immediately and there there was a point that I remember clearly where um the judge had made some sort of ruling that was going to preclude Cutler from making some sort of statement uh, in his opening statements that he couldn't get into some topic or whatever it was. And Bruce is standing there and he goes, your honor, I feel like I have my pants down in front of the court because he was just so <laughs> caught off guard by the court's ruling. But yeah, he did. I don't think he lasted much longer after that because it just was obvious. It was not working for that courtroom and that, that particular trial. So this is an interesting segue for me because I know Alan I don't know Alan Jackson, so I shouldn't call him Alan, but um, I know who he is. Um, he's traveled across the country uh, and done cases on the East Coast and done cases yep. in Florida and done mm -hmm. cases in California. So clearly his style, um, 
either he can adjust his style or his style works in different parts of the country. Um, what yeah. Do you think I, of, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think, I think if you are a, uh, a, you know, kind of a straightforward um, advocate, which I think Alan is, I don't think he's so stylized that it only works in one place geographically. I think if you're just a straightforward advocate, that's going to translate to wherever you practice in the country. And it, but it is true. You ask a good question because it's not like, you know, have law degree, can practice, and you can go wherever. There are different customs and ways of behaving and the ways that judges treat evidence. Um, I, I mean, I remember that he was handling a case. He had he had defended Kevin Spacey in, in Boston. And, and in working on that, we were just kind of fascinated by um, some of the ways that evidence is handled and things that, you know, would never take place in California, the prosecution is allowed to do in, in, um, out on the East coast in in some of their jurisdictions, but, you know, you have to be able to adapt and be a chameleon to some respect. And I think he's, he's very good at that. Um, and other attorneys, I think they thrive in their home state and their home court and probably do best to to stay there with the judges and kind of the attitudes and styles that they're familiar with. So tell me um, what what you thought about making the switch from being a, a prosecutor to um, joining a, a defense firm. Was it as easy as you thought it would be? Was it hard? Kind of describe the 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 process and the transition for me. Sure. I dealt, it was much more difficult for me, I think, psychologically than it turned out to be an actual practice. Because when you're in the DA's office, you very much feel as though you're, you're wearing the white hat and that you're doing the right thing. And that you feel like there's something beyond just um, the money that you're making here, that, that it's about, you know, kind of public service and protecting the community and putting away the bad guys. And I really thought that if I left and I started to do private practice, especially criminal defense, that somehow I was going to be on the dark side. And now I'm going to be the, you know, that there's this horrible stigma of the kind of underhanded criminal defense attorney. And I, I didn't want to be perceived that way. And then I found out that it's really not like that at all. First of all, you know, when you go into private practice, you're really not dealing with a lot of typical kind of street crime. You know, I'm not representing gangbangers and, and people out there committing murders and things like that. Um, that it's, for the most part, my clients are, are, are folks like you and I who've made a mistake and they really messed up and maybe they got a little too greedy or maybe they got a little too drunk or, you know, they did something that certainly doesn't reflect on their past um, but when you're in the DA's office, you're used to every single defendant that you deal with has a has a rap sheet as long as your arm. And then you get outside of the DA's office and you realize that not every person who's caught up in the criminal justice system is that type of a person, that not everybody is a, a criminal, that sometimes people have good reasons or bad reasons, but they're caught up in this system. And so that was something that I was, I kind of most... Uh, shocking to me and kind of took the most adjustment. Um, but then after that, I've really become to enjoy it. So tell me about your, um, your, your practice. So um, are you in trial frequently? Are trials uh, happening? Is that something? Are you 
So there, 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 there are two groups of people that I knew. The when the lawyer, the, the the judge would say, "Are you ready?" and these guys would, you know, they would have a flourish of gazillion motions trying to move everything a million times. Then there'd be the guys who were like, "Yeah, I'm ready." You know what I mean? Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> sure, let's go. Uh, where um, did you put yourself in that yeah. spectrum? I think when I was in the DA's office, I was much more of the shoot from the hip. Like, let's, you, you want to put 12 in the box? Let's put 12 in the box. I've, I've got my reports. I've got my witnesses. My subpoenas are all served. Let's go ahead and see what people think about this. Since I left, I, I did, and I did a heavy trial load. I mean, I'm talking probably a felony trial a month when I was in the DA's office. But when I left, um, that was the other kind of shocking thing is a lot of your clients don't want to go to trial. They Scary. want you to fit. Yeah. They want you to figure out a way to kind of mitigate as much of the damage as to what they're dealing with and get them out of this sticky situation without the perils that a possible trial could present. So since I've left, I haven't done many um, defense trials. Now, if I could pat myself on the back, the ones that I have done, I've been fairly successful at, I bet. but um, the, but for the most part, if I, you know, and I'll shoot straight with the client. I'll tell them like, listen, I'm not afraid of trial, but I'm a, I'm not the one who's going to be sitting in prison. If this a, is all said I might be afraid of it for you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so whatever we can do, whether that, that's motion work and kind of wearing the, the, the prosecution down or just good old fashioned plea negotiation and being able to speak to someone. And that's, what's been helpful too, is having all those relationships with the DA's office from having been there for 10 years you know, I usually know the prosecutor or the prosecutor's supervisor or something. And so it's not so much like I, I'm an outsider coming in, but I'm somebody they can trust. And I, they know is not just, you know, trying to pull the wool over their eyes. How would you describe your style in court? I mean, I, I, and, and, th and I preface this with this, um, everybody has their own style and styles have to be sort of modified and you have to shift it. And, you know, over some time, I got this moniker as the Rockweiler, which was, you know, from some while ago. But if you saw me dealing with jurors and jury selection, it's uh, I'm not anything like that. Um, and, I, you know, I have I'd like to think that I've got a, a full array of pitches and not just, you know, a fastball and I'm not just throwing it at your head. You know, <laughs> you have to. Right. Yeah. But in, in the end, I mean, we all sort of have a, a, a I mean, a style. Um, right. How would you describe yours? I think um, what I try to do, if I can, is be as likable without being, you know, playful and trustworthy to the jurors as I possibly can. And that will allow you a lot. I mean, that can allow you to go aggressively after a witness if you feel like it's appropriate. Um, that will allow you to kind of, uh, you know, make some slide you know, side remarks here and there if you feel like it might be appropriate. But as long as the jurors feel like you are not just putting on a show is what I've always felt is important. Because at the end of the day, after all of this, you're going to have to stand in front of them and make an argument. And if by then they either don't like you or don't believe you, then anything that comes out of your mouth, I don't think is going to be as persuasive. And so that's what I've always tried to do is, is bring an element of authenticity. But like, you know, authenticity is a practice skill as well. So I, I try to be myself, but sometimes that it, uh, involves a little bit of performance 
to making sure that comes across to jurors? I try to be myself, except the self that I'm embarrassed of. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I, I, and I joke about that, but you know, I, you get, sometimes you can get, uh, I'll tell you a story before I make my point. Um, a, a quick one. I, I had, it was a, a case in which I was trying and I was just, you know, very even keel and was trying to be, you know, kind of keep my, 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 my emotions in check. And then an expert that I was cross-examining or an expert that an associate actually was cross-examining um, went back on and really lit into, lit into him. Um, and so when the next, I, 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 it offended me and I was bothered by it. And then when that expert's colleague took the stand, I cross-examined him and I wanted to, and, and I was, when I tell revenge. you, Josh, <laughs> when I tell you that I, I, I was taking a piece, a pound of flesh and more, I was like, you had to, you know, leave the guy alone already. I mean, we got, right. it. we got the point. Right, right. But I was bothered by it. And in closing, I almost felt like I wanted to apologize and explain. And I, I did in my own way, explain why I took that approach with, with that, that witness. Um, and I was worried that 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 I had come across too strong with the the expert supervisor. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've had a moment like that, but I was worried. I sat there. I was like, oh, man, did I just I mean, you know, did I just fart in church here? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah no, you know? it's a it's a it's an adversarial environment. Right. And it's and you you want to win. And that's part of what makes you a good attorney. And it's hard sometimes to not get caught up in that and just try and, you know, sometimes, uh, especially experts, it seems to you, you, they, they're so slick and so tied to their own narrative and it becomes frustrating. And it's hard to sometimes not let your emotions get away from you and feel like this is a personal battle between you and them. What I would do, I mean, there are times when I've really lit into a, an expert and what I, always tried to do is make it as though the expert's not insulting me, but he's insulting the jury. Are you sitting here telling this jury, these 12 people taking their time to sit here that X, Y, and Z, is that what you're, is that what you're trying to tell these people and almost make it like I'm indignant on their behalf and, and try to turn it into now it's, now it's the 13 of us <laughs> against you. Um, and, and that's always something I've, I've tried to do is, is make, ally myself with the jury as much as I can. Do you watch the jury? A hundred percent all the time. I'm not staring at them awkwardly, but I'm, <laughs> I'm keeping, I'm keeping an eye on them for sure. What do you tell your client to do during a trial? Uh, stay calm, take notes and stop whispering in my ear. <laughs> believe me i'm paying attention i know what's going on i know that person just lied i'm writing it all down but i don't need you in my ear i'm trying to pay attention to what's going on pull it on your pull it on your yeah exactly and, and i'm not trying to make fun of the person in that position but but that is something we we all everybody that i've talked to has the same sort of like i got it i got it i yeah. got it you know yeah and the interesting point is that the jury's watching that interaction too, as you know. 
Yes. They're watching your client sitting there all of a sudden, like breaking out in a sweat, trying to pull yes. on your coattails and your, you know. Uh, so hun, you, that's an excellent point. Do you want to really highlight what just happened or do you want to ignore it? And, and hopefully the jury doesn't think it's a big point either. Very and, good point. And let me deal with it. Like, yeah. I, I'm going to deal with it. I'm either going to deal with it on cross because I'm going to deal with it and I'm going to turn that point around in our favor. I'm going to, or I'm going to go after the witness and show that the witness is otherwise not believable. So discount that. If it's a point that we need to sort of just ignore, I'm going to bury it in, you know what I mean? I'm going to hopefully hide that one little thing in a, in a mountain of other stuff that we develop with that witness. But if we spend time with you yep. kind of pulling on my past passing post-it notes back and right, forth. Back and forth. So, yeah. Yeah. We're sitting here and the jury all of a sudden is like, what the hell is so boy, that must've really got them flustered over there. They're flipping around looking through something, you yeah. know? Yeah, no. And, 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 and it's such an important thing to keep in mind too, for trial lawyers is that the jurors, they're they're no they're they're everyday folks and they're curious and they want to listen and they want to see reactions and they're watching everything that sometimes half of the time they're not paying attention to the witness as much as they're paying attention to your reaction to the witness it's such a good point so that so that leads to um a a, a case that i want to chat with you about um the the case that the the state of Wisconsin versus um, uh, Daryl Brooks, and I covered that case a bit on law and crime and other otherwise I think you did as well, and that was the case involving um, Daryl Brooks had essentially terminated his uh, court appointed counsel right before the um, the trial, and the judge marched on and he was going on his sovereign citizen you know so i want to play a short clip from the video from the trial about daryl brooks and his sovereign citizen moments and all of that and then we'll chat about that on the other side um, not if i'm not allowed to face my accuser your honor my accuser in this matter would be the state of wisconsin and with all Sir, due respect your sixth amendment rights in that regard have been complied with um, I'm requesting uh, a written judicial fact, finding of fact and co conclusion of law on this issue um, for the grounds that I just stated. Um, it, it was seen based on the Sixth Amendment that I'm not being awarded the chance to face my accuser, which I should be awarded that based on the Sixth Amendment. If I'm not able to face my accuser, then how can the claim even stand? How can how can a claim be brought against my client if I'm not able to face the men know the state of Wisconsin? Objection. Grounds. Grounds. Sustained. So it will be also fair to state that you are, are not an injured party in this matter, correct? Objection asked and answered. Grounds. Um, sustained. Are you aware what a plaintiff is? Objection relevant. Grounds. Sustained. Grounds for the substantial, Your Honor. Next question, Mr. Brown. Is that verified proof that you have subject matter jurisdiction? The decision and order speaks for itself, sir. Is it verified proof that you have it? Sir, I believe it answers your questions. I, I don't believe Unequivocally. so. There's no ver verified proof proving yet. 
There's no verified proof if, if we're in common law or admiralty law. What, what court is this? Sir, I believe your answers will be in that decision and order. I don't believe so. Well, have you read it yet? All right. So have you ever encountered like the, the, the sovereign citizen, the client that wants to argue the either as a prosecutor or as a, as a defense lawyer? I've never encountered the sovereign citizen thing. That's, that's a new one. And, and, you know, interesting to watch, but I think painful for the jurors and everyone else. But uh, I have dealt with a pro per defendant before during a trial, which was not nearly as exhausting as this trial was, but it was exhausting in and of itself. Cause you know, the whole, the most difficult thing I had in that was maintaining what this case was about rather than the antics of the defendant. Let's maintain what this case is about. And that's this, this person who was really victimized. It was a domestic violence case. And so just being able to kind of keep the jury focused on let's not pay attention to him in this sideshow over here, but let's pay attention to, to serving justice. How did you do that? Um, it was by maintaining uh, my patience, I think, had a lot to do with it. The judge was also very good in maintaining their patience. And, um, you know, I would object where appropriate, but sometimes I would let him have his moments because either one, I felt that they were only hurting him or two, I didn't want, I didn't want it to appear to the jury as though me and the judge were ganging up on him to not allow, allow him to have his case. And I said that in closing arguments. I, I made a point of saying, I let him go. I let him talk a lot. I let him say whatever he needed to be said because I wanted you to feel like he got his opportunity here. And all that he's done with that is show you exactly who he is. And so that's that's at least the way I tried to do it. And it, it we did get a conviction. So I, I, I think it was successful, but I think it had a lot to do with the facts more than it had to do with me. So what did you think um, watching the Daryl Brooks case, the, the Waukesha, you know, Christmas parade yeah. massacre, that murder case. What did you think um, as a lawyer? What do you think that that as a, as a citizen, ex-prosecutor, as a parent? Um, and what did you think uh, as you watched that case about, is there some way to reform the, the trials so that that can't happen again? Yeah, that's such a great question. I, well, first to the first part of your question, what I felt was saddened and frustrated by the whole thing, because I thought what we're losing sight of here is all the tremendous, immeasurable loss that these people have suffered. And instead of having their moment of closure and being able to do that with dignity, we have to listen to this person, you know, perform this circus for the last several weeks. The other thing that struck me, though, was the incredible patience and decorum by the judge. I thought she did a phenomenal job. And I know I she's, been, I, she's been criticized by some by letting him get away with too much. But at the same time, she's being very conscientious of not giving an opportunity for appeal by not giving him his ability to say whatever he needed to be said. But to your, to your the, the last part of your question on what can be done, it's really difficult because so that your listeners understand, we're talking about his constitutional rights. He has a constitutional right to represent himself. 
And so a judge can't just simply say, you're going to turn this into a circus. You're going to make this last too long. You're going to be too disruptive. Therefore, I'm denying you your constitutional rights. I think she realized that, listen, he's demonstrated competency, which is a very low threshold. He's, he's, I've advised him as to all of the, uh, you know, rights and everything that he has and what this means and how he's taking this at his own peril. And he's answered all those questions in a way that I can't really avoid. And so I'm going to let him do this. And I thought she was incredibly patient and used, you know, kicked him out of the courtroom when it needed to happen, but also let him stay in the courtroom when it needed to happen. And it was just a tremendous uh, amount of patience that I don't think I would have had. Yeah, me neither. I watched the trial. First of all, Josh, to your point about the way that the judge that the judge acted and the way that she ruled and comported herself, I think it fits with what you described in the case that you prosecuted, in which you went up against somebody who was improper, which is you have to almost you you, you have to make more judicious decisions about and be more tolerant yeah. um, and and try to even more kind of get out of the way so that the there isn't an appeal you yeah. want the case focused on the wit on the 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 charge and the case and the trial but it's not the same as two representatives just kind of duking it out because now you're yeah. actually so i i agree with you as you were describing how you handled it I sort of heard and thought of the way the prosecutors handled it, which is to kind of get out of the way um, and to be as reserved as possible and the way the judge handled it. So I think that you're, you were spot on with that. Yeah. I guess, well, and it's not... I, I guess the reason why I ask about how to handle it is because I've never seen, I haven't had or haven't seen a case in which the judges essentially, they're all held hostage again to Daryl Brooks. They were held hostage that day with the yeah. terror. And then when he fled, they were held hostage when they were trying to, you know, throughout the course of the case and they're held hostage during the trial. Yeah. Because what do you do? You, you can't just ban them. I mean, you no, banish no. And, and, and to your point too, it's not even, it's, it's a bunch of it is uh, considerations about appeal but it's also considerations about just the optics in front of that jury too, because if if the judge were to shut him down so much, or if the prosecution were to jump down his throat for everything he said with an objection, and he's getting zero opportunity to present any kind of case, well, then it, it can look as though this man has been denied any opportunity to defend himself to the jurors. And last thing you want is one of those jurors somehow getting sympathetic to him and hanging that jury and you have to go through it all over again. So I agree with you. I think the judge and the prosecutors did a good job of kind of giving him as much, you know, leeway as they possibly could, but then at the same time, cutting it off before it became ridiculous. So I want to, I want to transition if we can and talk about, I know we've, we've also both covered the um, as has every legal analyst and every legal network and everybody that's ever mentioned law and people that haven't and haven't thought about the legal system all have at some point talked about the um the the debt versus herd case yeah um and um it was really a pleasure to 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 be able to cover that case with with some very good lawyers and hopefully bring some insight to that case i know you you did and 
thought as well. But let's take a little bit of time and talk about um, uh, Camille Vasquez's uh, cross-examination of Amber Heard. And I want to talk, I'm going to, let's play a clip of it. Sitting here today, Ms. Heard, you still haven't donated the $7 million divorce settlement to charity. Isn't that right? Incorrect. I pledged the entirety no, of Ms. the settlement, Heard, $7 million to charity, question. and I, I intend to Ms. fulfill Heard, those obligations. Heard, that's not my question. Please, what try was your to question? answer my question. Sitting here today, you have not donated the $7 million, donated, not pledged, donated, the $7 million divorce settlement to charity. I use pledge and donation synonymous with one another. They but I the don't. Ms. Hurd, I don't use it synonymously. That's how donations are paid. Ms. Hurd, respectfully, that's not my question. As of today, you have not paid $3.5 million of your own money to the ACLU. Yes or no? I have not yet. And as of today, you have not paid $3.5 million of your own money to the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, correct? I have not yet. Johnny sued me. So as of today, you have not donated, paid $7 million of your divorce settlement to charity, right? I have not been able to fulfill those, uh, those uh, obligations yet. You wanted Mr. Depp's money. Didn't get it. Wasn't interested in it. I loved Johnny. That's why I was with him. You wanted praise for donating the money, right? That's incorrect. You wanted good press. In general, one <laughs> does want good press, yes. You wanted to seem altruistic publicly. Wasn't my interest. Um, my interest is uh, in my name and clearing my name. And at the time, I was being called a liar and my motives were being questioned. I did see it as important to clear that up. I wanted to make a statement to make sure that there was not any doubt that I couldn't be labeled these things just because Johnny was a bigger star and had more publicity reach. You wanted to remind everyone of your claims of domestic violence against Mr. Depp, right? No, I wanted to move on with my life. You wanted to make those claims seem believable. They are believable. They you were You wanted believable. them to be seen, you wanted to be seen, excuse me, as a noble victim of domestic violence. I have you? never, never, wanted to be seen as a victim, nor have you, I ever called myself one. You testified under oath that, quote, the entirety of your divorce settlement was donated to charity, end quote, didn't you? That's correct. I pledged the entirety. No. Ms. Heard, my questions. Your counsel will have time to redirect you after. You testified under oath, quote, the entirety of your divorce settlement was donated to charity, end quote. That is correct. I pledged the entirety. I'm going to move to strike everything after yes. Uh, all right. Ms. Hurt, this I, is really yeah. inappropriate. I, I'll sustain the objection and we'll just move forward. Thank you. Under oath, that statement wasn't true, was it, Ms. Hurt? I'm sorry, I don't follow your question, sorry. You testified under oath, quote, the entirety of my divorce settlement was donated to charity, end quote. That statement wasn't true. It is true. I pledged the entirety to charity. 
the statement. When you say you buy a house, you don't pay Ms. for the Heard, entire house Heard, at one time. You pay it I'm over not asking, time. Ms. Heard. All right, next question, please. Thank you. That statement isn't true today, as you sit here today, is it? It is true. I pledged the entirety. But you didn't charity. donate it. Unfortunately. You didn't donate it. It's a yes or no. I haven't been able to obligate, I mean, to fulfill those So that's a no, right, Ms. Heard? I, am, I made the pledge. I want to be very clear. I pledged the entirety. I haven't been able to fulfill those pledges because I've been sued. You had all of the $7 million for 13 months before Mr. Depp sued you, and you chose not to pay it to the charities you pledged it to. Is that I, correct, Ms. I Hurt? disagree with your characterization of that. All right. What did you think of her cross? I thought it was really well done. I mean, I, 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 you know, talk about the pressure. You know, she, she realizes the entire country is watching this trial at this point. She's a younger attorney, and she's got to go up there and do what is essentially probably the most important cross-examination of that entire trial, which is the cross of Amber Heard. Um, and I thought she really rose to the occasion. Um, and then a couple of things that stood out to me is, one, it was a smart move by his team to have a female cross-examiner. I, I really just feel that it, it, it would not have gone the same way had it been even a very skilled and very... Um, soft touch um, male attorney cross-examining Amber Heard optics wise, I just don't think it would have worked the same. But the, the other thing that I thought um, that attorney, and her name's Camille, right? Camille, uh, Camille Vasquez, yep. Camille Vasquez did so well is especially in cross-examining a person who's an alleged victim. And I know this wasn't a criminal case. We, we lose sight of the fact that this really was defamation, but she, it really came down to did domestic violence take place or not. So it was kind of a quasi domestic violence case. And here you have the alleged victim of this violence testifying. And you can't just go up there and immediately lay into that person and start calling them a liar and try to get really aggressive in your cross-examination. But you have to they have to give you, the way I always say it is the, the witness has to give you permission to go after them. And hmm. Camille waited until Amber Heard gave her permission and she gave her permission and the way that she started answering and she was snarky and she had attitude and she appeared to be evasive and she appeared to not be answering the question and she appeared to be very scripted and going back to these same points that she wanted to make. And the more she did that, the more Ms. Vasquez was able to kind of lay into her and interrupt her and say, you're not answering my question. My question is this. You, isn't it in fact true? And, and the jurors are going to go along with that because they're going to get frustrated with the witness as well and want you to do that. And so I thought she was very masterful in the way that she did that, which is difficult to do because, I mean, you know, we've got a case going on here in Los Angeles with Harvey Weinstein, and you've got these female witnesses who are going up testifying about uh, their, um, you know, alleged assaults at the hands of this powerful man. And the defense attorneys in that case are getting, uh, you know, aggressive with it. And we don't have the advantage of seeing the courthouse and seeing what's inside of that courtroom and what's taking place. But it's, it's, you know, they, that's it's an incredibly difficult. I, I I don't know if you feel the same way, but I know that it's the most difficult job I felt as a defense attorney is cross-examining an alleged victim, especially if they're female, and especially if we're talking about sexual assault. 
But I know we're not talking about that in Amber Heard, but I thought for all of those reasons, why it was why it was so successful. There's such a good point, Josh. Um, and I'm glad you made it because, you know, there's this idea out there from, you know, social media and Twitter and that it's just sort of, you know, I can just take the points and put them out there and I'll make them. But there's there are, there's human components to it. There's a judge. There's other lawyers in the courtroom. There are there's the opposing lawyers. And one of the things that I observed in the way that there, that cross-examination went is I liken it to sort of a tug of war. And there is a tug of war with the witness. Yeah. And you, you, have, to, you have to be cognizant of the fact that you can't just, when they blow the whistle, you can't just try to ex exert all of your force and might yeah. The second, you know what I mean? Yeah. You have to be able to, to figure out a rhythm so that you can get ahead of the witness. And I've seen plenty of lawyers who don't get ahead of the witness and the witness gets ahead of them. And then you can see the sweat start to pour down and you know, the lawyers are freaking out. And then sometimes they'll lose their cool because they don't have, they, they, they aren't getting the better of the witness. Um, I, and, and I, I want to go to the to the point that you made about where she was able to where where Camille Vasquez was able to to to, to sort of interrupt Amber Heard as she started a an answer and interrupt her and say no no you're not answering my question and then um, there are a lot of times where judges won't let you do that particularly in a criminal case, they won't let us do that. I'm sure you've had that experience or you've watched it happen. What do you think made the difference there where um, Camille Vasquez was able to do that, do it effectively and not have the judge throw a gavel at her, <laughs> which, which, well, you know, I've yeah. seen judges jump down lawyers throats and yeah. say, don't interrupt the witness. Well, she, once she was respectful, um, she always maintained her cool, I think, um, and she maintained professional decorum. Um, but one one piece, as you're speaking, that I remember in particular was there was this whole issue about whether or not she had given money, the money she received from Johnny Depp, whether or not she had given that to certain charities. And she, they began to quibble about, she said she pledged it and... Uh, Vasquez was asking, well, did you give it? You actually didn't give it. Well, I pledged it. Well, you didn't give it. And they went back and forth. And what happens there and why I think Camille was able to really dig in and drill down and, and get a little snarky with her is because from anybody's perspective, that was a frustrating exchange. And that you can tell, I don't care if you're a lawyer or if you know anything about this case or not, you could have just walked in right then and been frustrated and realizing that person's just not answering a very straightforward and simple question. And that's why she was able to lay into her. And it, it also goes to me, and I know this is not exactly the, the topic we're on right now, but it goes to me about witness preparation. She had to have known those questions were coming. And if your best answer is just to stick to your pledge answer and go back to that and continue to try to work that, that's not going to work. It, I feel like it would worked out a lot better for her to say, no, you know what? I didn't get an opportunity to actually give them the money. I pledged them the money. 
I intended absolutely to give it to him. I just wasn't able to get around to it because of this lawsuit and everything else. But the way she dug in and tried to change the meaning of words in front of the jury was so frustrating for anyone to watch that the jury and the judge and everybody else said, have at it, Camille, go, go get her. Such a, have you had an opportunity in your, um, first of all, how do you handle as a cross-examiner? How would you handle, I'm not saying this particular case, but we've all had witnesses who've done that where they, they, they won't just concede an obvious point. So tell me how you've handled that. I mean, have you handled it similar to the way that Camille Vasquez handled it? Have you yeah. handled it differently? Do you have a way that you handle it typically? I mean, again, as long as I feel as though the, the frustration I'm having with the witness is shared by the jury, then I think you can, you can dig into your pocket and get a little snarky on some of these things. And I remember, especially with experts, because they're not victims, they're not civilian witnesses. These are paid guns who are up there testifying. And I think you can go into them a little bit heavier. But I remember, I, I mean, saying stuff like, sir, is there a reason you don't want to answer my very straightforward question? <laughs> is, is there, a, am I doing, is it my fault? Am I not asking the question clear enough? Because I feel like I am. But here's the question I'm asking, but you seem to be answering something else. And you know, you start to get playful and maybe you'll get objected to and everything else. But by then, I feel like the jury is probably sharing your frustration. Um, and jurors I are told and they're told that one of the things that they can judge when it comes to credibility is did the, the, the witness answer the questions or did they argue right. with the lawyer and attempt to evade? Yeah, yeah. If I can, as we're thinking of this, I I remember, can I tell a little war story of a, I of love a, a war case? Stories. Okay. Yes. Um, this was when I was a first year prosecutor and it, one of my first trials, and it's a misdemeanor trial, um, but it was a very serious trial for me because it was a case involving domestic violence and child abuse. A father had been beating his children. And not to the point that it was felony, but enough that it was, you know, it's about as serious as you can get for a misdemeanor case. And the father was testifying. And the father was this very kind of macho guy, very indignant with the whole thing and had this kind of attitude. And so I knew I could kind of get into him a little bit. And one of the things that he had said was that he, the reason why he knows that they're not telling the truth and that he should be believed is that he, in fact, himself, is a domestic violence counselor and that he takes his time out on the weekends to speak to people who have been true victims of domestic violence. And when I heard that, I just thought, <laughs> okay, buddy. And I said to him, well, then, you know, isn't it true, sir, the people who are suffering uh, as victims of domestic violence, that oftentimes this goes unreported. Isn't that true? And he kind of half answers my question. Well, isn't it true that as it continues to go unreported, the violence might become more extreme and the person who's committing that violence might become more emboldened. Isn't that true? And I kept on going and his attorney starting to lose herself over here. And finally, she asked for a sidebar. She's making objections and the judge isn't sustaining them. She asked for a sidebar and she goes, I'll never forget this. She goes to the judge. She goes, your honor, I don't know exactly what this line of questioning is intended to, to do. And the judge said, well, it 
appears as though Mr. Ritter is using your client as a expert against himself. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, that's exactly what I'm doing, your honor. Um, So it was a, it was one of those moments where you realized, you know, kind of watch for the opportunities as they present themselves and you can take some uh, advantage of them. I love that. I, there, there are, every time I watch or listen to, um, good lawyers handle situations like that. Um, you know, I, I sit back and I, and I get reminded a little jolt of, of energy or electricity. I get reminded of, of the, you know, the, the competitive nature of what we do, but also that we have the ability to use some God-given talents and to be able to kind of turn that around. You're like, really, you're really going to go there. Okay. All right. You know, here we go, buddy. Here we go. <laughs> here we go. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you, you know, um, I, and I, and I've seen that that's a, I could just imagine a judge saying that, you know, um, what's the relevance of this? Yeah. And the, the listen, if you don't know, you might want <laughs> exactly. to tell your client to enter a plea quickly. because Yeah, not exactly. Going well. So, <laughs> Speaking of judges, I, I wanted to, to I, I did want to ask you about Judge Elizabeth Scherer and the in the Nicholas Cruz case. Um, you know, it's a horrible tragedy. Um, and there's no other way to describe the, you know, someone shooting up a, a school and, and, and killing a bunch of students um, and holding them hostage. It's a it's a it's a, a new, it, it, it's, it's beyond a homicide or a murder. It's right. just, you know, it's beyond that, right? There's, there's something just so beyond that. Um, and that was a particularly difficult trial for everybody involved for, and I know people in Parkland who have um, know people who were in and around that case and in and around that, that, that horrific um, tragedy. But I want to I want to talk a little bit about something. Two things that the judge did, um, and one of the things that uh, that we she did was to actually um, chastise the defense lawyers towards the end um, of the 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 sentencing hearing, or the where the victims' families were able to to get up and give their their victim impact statements, and then at the end where she um, hugged, uh, I, I believe, hugged some of the victims' families, and hugged some of the 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 prosecutors. So I want to play a clip, and then let's talk about it. What is the problem, Judge? I have no problem because I have thick skin. But once you bring in my children, I think that's highly improper. It's being I didn't even sport. know you have children. I don't know what you're talking about. Your children? What about your children? For them to comment on my children is highly improper. Before this court to allow that kind of testimony okay. is also There was, I don't remember any comments about any children. And if there was, it, it, it obviously didn't, it, it, it came and went without me noticing it. Trish, I can assure you that if, if they were talking about your children, you would definitely notice it. You need to sit down right now. You're out of line. In fact, you're excused. You need to go sit in the back with your, with your, uh, Chief Public Defender. He's the Public Defender. Mr. Weeks, 
Please ask the lawyer from your office to go sit down and not say anything else. To try to threaten my children and bring up my children is inappropriate. Go to the back of the room now. That just violated about every rule of professional responsibility that I have ever, I have never. If you're going to get up here and you're going to. Judge, I asked you to go sidebar on this matter. You, sidebar or not, you don't have one of your assistant public defenders say something about my children. Judge, that same venom that the court is expressing is the same venom that defense counsel had to sit through this entire morning when she their children She brought up her children multiple times during the trial. Nobody knows if I'm barren or not. They don't judge, know about my children. Judge. Sit down. Sit down. Judge. Sit down, Mr. Weeks. Please do not summarily dismiss I'm me. summarily dismissing I'm asking you. Go the court. sit down. I'm asking the court. I asked the court to go sidebar. Go sit down. You don't threaten the judge, court's children. Everyone in this courtroom. Just did that. Go sit down. No, no one in this courtroom had to endure what we had to endure. Go sit down. Miss McNeil has made her children a spectacle more than once during this trial. That was her choice. You have absolutely no right to have one of your assistants come up here and suggest something about my children. Now, please go sit down. Judge. You're judge. inappropriate and out of line. Go sit down. Judge, may you have a brief recess? No. Go sit down. May I have a brief recess so I can speak to my attorneys? We're moving on with the sentencing, Mr. Weeks. So I can I have a brief recess? No. Thank you. It's 136. Thank you. All right. So first, um, what did you generally think, or more specifically, what did you think about the, the way the judge interacted with the defense lawyers at the end of the, the sentencing um, and sort of chastising them? What, what, what did you think about that? Um, you know, one of the things I think a, a judge has to try to do, um, more than the, the attorneys, um, and it's a very difficult thing is to not become embroiled in the trial and they are supposed to maintain objectiveness and impartiality at all times. And, and that means even if the defense attorneys are giving you the business, or even if the prosecution's going after you really hard, you are just supposed to be calling balls and strikes. And I think this judge had a, a very difficult time. And I know she's received a lot of uh, criticism for, for some of the way that she's reacted to the defense on this. And I think some of that criticism is warranted. Um, I think she did become a little embroiled and frustrated and allowed that to come out in the way that she spoke to them. I think at the same time, the defense uh, invited some of that. Uh, there were some you know, ways that they behaved or antics that they pulled in court. But more than anything, I think, regardless of what the defense does or the prosecution, the defense, the, the, the judge needs to maintain this, this stoic um, decorum, which you could kind of see that breakdown with her uh, on a couple of occasions. And I think that's because she realized the magnitude of this case. And like, you know, for all the reasons you just pointed out, not to mention that the entire country was watching. Um, and and I think she also became frustrated with the fact that it didn't return a verdict of death. I really do. I think she felt that somehow, and, and again, I know I'm trying to read the tea leaves of her behavior and I, you know, I, 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 I don't mean any disrespect, but I feel as though she may have been frustrated with the fact that after all of this, it didn't come back with a verdict that a lot of people had expected. 
So um, how do you deal with difficult judges? We've all encountered them. And I'm, I'm not even saying that, that Judge Scher is a traditionally difficult judge. I don't know anything about her outside of watching some portions of her, her um, demeanor and approach in that case. And, um, you know, look, you, my opinion of judges is that uh, you're, you're a judge, you're in the case. Um, it's, it's not a popularity contest. You may not be well-liked. You don't even necessarily get a chance to explain everything you're doing. You don't get a chance to just turn to the, let me explain to you why I'm keeping out a bunch of the stuff that when I'm sustaining Mr. Right. Ritter's uh, objections, let me tell you why I'm doing that. You don't even get to do that right. because then you're sort of defeating the purpose of ruling of, of sustaining the objection. But we've all encountered judges that are themselves difficult that sort of make it more difficult to practice. Yeah. Um, how have you handled that? And those types of judges, if you can share either a war story or, I mean, yeah. other than you going to jail and being held in contempt. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. I think it's, I think my attitude towards judges has changed a little since I went from the prosecution to the defense. Um, I've dealt with difficult judges on both sides. Um, I, one case in particular is coming to mind where when I was a prosecutor, I just felt that this judge was not only um, making wrong decisions, but seemed to be just trying to help out the defense in any way that he possibly could. And it's tough because, you know, you, you're not, you're not, you represent something, you represent the government, you represent the DA's office and the people. And so there's this certain, you know, kind of attitude that you feel that you have to maintain with the judge. And so you're a little bit more reserved in how much you feel like you can push back and that was very frustrating to me. But since leaving, I've realized, hey, no, I, I have a responsibility to one person who's sitting next to me and they have no voice but mine. And so if I don't push back, then I'm doing them a disservice. And I and and listen, I I may I like to pride myself on being a very respectful person to even very frustrating judges. But I I know some judges that I've I've said before, I said I if you're asking me to apologize for doing the best that I possibly can for my client, I'm not going to do that. And I think some of that has sometimes woken up judges, you know, they realize, oh, okay, he's just doing this on behalf of his client. But um, it, it is one of the things that I, I tell people who are going to law school, what will be the most shocking to you? And that is the caliber of the bench you will realize that you have some judicial officers who are phenomenal and they are brilliant and they're even-handed and they try to do the right thing. And then you'll realize there's other people there who you wouldn't let them run a bagel shop. And you, you, <laughs> you, you, you are a, a, amazed that they have this power that they do. And they're a combination of not knowing the law and then just an incredible ego on top of it. And it's just a nightmare to deal with. And it's unfair fortunate uh, that we can come up with a better system of kind of doing something about those types of judges. Well, I have to ask in California, are judges, um, are they appointed or are they reviewed? Are they elected or is it a combination of? of it's a combination. They can be, they can be uh, appointed by the uh, governor. Um, 
and, or they can be elected, but even if they're appointed, they do have a term. So they do have to defend themselves. The, un, the frustrating part though, is that if you're a long established judge, you know, it's difficult to challenge a judge because for the most part, people really don't care about judges elections. And, you know, the voting numbers are extremely low and I don't, you know, it probably comes down to who was in your mailer that said, you know, while you're voting for governor and everybody else, these are the judges we endorse and you don't know anything about them. So it, you can have these judges that just, you know, get, get into some position somewhere and it's hard to ever get rid of them. Mm -hmm. I, I so agree. It almost comes down to who can come up with the best advertisement or flyer with a, exactly. you know, what are you going to do? Get a bunch of defense lawyers standing behind you and a bunch of people that, right. you know, whose cases you dismiss standing behind you saying, this is a very fair judge, you know, right. as opposed to, you know, they trot out the police union and they trot out the, 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 the chiefs uh, international union of the chiefs of police and stand there with their shiny medals. Right. I mean, right. Um, right. So, uh, okay, a couple of quick questions, sort of a speed round, if you will, Josh. Sure. If you had to one word to describe your um, your approach in court, just get one. Um, <laughs> um, strategic, okay. I guess. Um, can I explain? Or is this a speed round? No, speed round. I'll let you explain in one second. One word to describe your cross-examination style. Patient. Um, and how about one word, if you would, uh, well, who's the best cross-examiner that you've ever seen? Other than yourself. <laughs> Other than myself. Um, there's a DA here in uh in los angeles who's also a mentor of mine um named phil sterling uh who was brilliant and i'll i'll tell you if i can tell you really quickly why one time i he a defendant was about to take the stand uh to testify and he testified on his own behalf and then phil gets up to cross-examine him and the first thing phil says is Sir, do you have anything else to tell us? Please go ahead. And he took a step back and folded his shoulders and, and sat on the, on the bench and just let the guy talk. And it was brilliant because you could see the defense attorneys losing their minds because now their defense, their defendant is up there, their client, just saying anything and everything he wants because Phil knew that everything coming out of his mouth, he's going to be able to just rip them apart for. And I just mm. thought it was so brilliant. Instead of being afraid of what that person said, he encouraged him to say all that he wanted because hold on, <laughs> like you said, just hold <laughs> on, here I come. Yeah. All right. Um, and if there's one person that you could cross-examine, who would it be? My brother. <laughs> I got to hear. Okay, why? Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of questions I've got that I, have gone unanswered. <laughs> uh, listen, I, I want to tell you, Josh, I, that's the best answer I've heard yet. I've had, I've done, I don't know how many episodes of this podcast we've had. I've interviewed, I don't know. I've interviewed people from Mesero to uh, Joey Jackson uh, Dershowitz. Um, I mean, I've had, you know, wonderful guests, <laughs> just 
and everybody, oh, I want to I cross-examine this guy or this person or that person. That's the best answer. I've <laughs> Good. I'm glad that's the best. I, answer. I could my, help my brother. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know what happened to that donut yeah, back in exactly. <laughs> 1982. Who, who really broke my skateboard? I yeah. got in trouble for that. Yeah. You know, this day, Bob still says, and you, you know, uh, it's a great, great answer. All right. You wanted to tell me this, why you would, the one word you used to describe your silent court was strategic. I didn't give you a chance to, to oh. explain why. Why? Why would you say strategic? Yeah, I guess it's it's self-explanatory. But it, it, I pride myself in kind of not just having one gear, but you know, being able to just make sure that whatever I'm doing is in furtherance of of my case. And I, it, so I guess that would be strategic. I, I appreciate that. Again, um, the brother answer. <laughs> so so great so that's just awesome <laughs> it's gonna completely change my paradigm for right. you know whenever i ask that question in the future <laughs> if someone doesn't say brother i'm gonna be like what about a brother or a yeah. sister or a who, relative i could do that <laughs> who do you really want to put under penalty of perjury to yeah. answer some questions oh i love it i love it so josh ritter um tell us if you would, how people can find you. I know you've got a social media presence. We've talked about that, but let's just go through it again. At, at, sure. you know, Primacy recency. Tell us how, how people can find you on Twitter, Facebook, um, yeah. your website, et cetera. Kind of run through that for us. No, I appreciate that. On, on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Joshua Ritter ESQ. Um, you know, I'm trying to put out as much content as I can of things that I'm up to, but then I've got a website joshuaritter.com um which is where you can find out whatever i'm up to plus it you know highlights the podcast and um has a link to get a hold of me if you're looking for a lawyer or if you just want to go straight to the uh law firm website it's uh erlawyers.com and so um please check me out uh and then don't forget about the podcast by the way too true crime daily the sidebar it's wherever you get your podcasts and it's also on youtube so please check it out i appreciate that josh it's been really great to to have the time we've had together to to chat i'm so glad you took time out of your your busy day to to um you know just to take part in the killer cross examination podcast and um i truly enjoyed the interview and i bet everybody else will as well Thank you so much. I, this was very fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you.